You are listening to the Fancy Free Podcast, where my girlfriends and I tell our most embarrassing, funny stories so that we all feel less alone in our imperfections and forge connection through vulnerability and humor. I'm Joanne Jarrett, and I am your host. And today, I don't know that I've ever been as excited to present a guest to you as I am to present to you Mary Turner Thompson. Mary and I met on a Facebook group, and she has an incredible story and an incredible Incredible perspective. Mary, thank you so much for being with me today. You're very welcome. I'm quite excited to be here myself. Oh, goody. Mary is an international best-selling author of the true crime memoir, The Bigamist, which is being relaunched under a new publisher on September 15th of this year, which will have passed by the time this episode is aired, so you can run right out and buy it. She is a motivational speaker as well as a publishing consultant, helping other people write, publish, and promote their own books, and she has a background in marketing and business advice. Mary, fill in the blanks. What did I miss about who you are and what you do? Oh, gosh, that's going to take about 55 years to explain. (laughs) Go for it. I'm a mom. I work from home, so lockdown has not been a problem. My life partner is a dog. (laughs) <laughs> what breed? I have to know more about the dog. She's a blonde cockapoo and she's absolutely the love of my life. Do you have a picture we could post in the show notes of your cockapoo? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Yes, she's utterly adorable. Oh, and what is her name? Honey. Oh, that's a bit of a joke because when I first got a dog, I thought, you know, I might actually call her some hard name like Dika, you know, I have to, after Boudica or something <laughs> to make her sound like a good guard dog. But it took one look at her and thought, oh, no, she just, she's honey colored. She's such a honey. And it was just that I could walk through the door and say, hi, honey, I'm home. (laughs) I love it. That's stuck. So cute. The love of a pet is so pure and simple, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's just the the most loyal and honest and loving creatures. Yeah, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the love of a dog. And how old are your kids? My eldest daughter is 21. My middle daughter is 18. And my son is 15. And are they living with you? Yes. (laughs) We've been in lockdown together and it has been fantastic because we all get on terribly well. And uh, my daughter's boyfriend, my 18-year-old's daughter boyfriend, was with us when we went into lockdown. So there were five of us. We've been doing poker nights and, and watching movies together and things like that. So it's rather good fun. I think it just sounds like a really long slumber party. It is a bit, really. Well, as you know, the point of this podcast is to share our not so fancy stories. And you have a massive not-so-fancy story. And I just can't wait for you to walk my listeners through this amazing, incredible, (laughs) unbelievable, but completely believable when you tell it story. What happened to you? Well, yeah, that's a... I'll skim through the basic outline of the story. In the year 2000, uh, I had a one-year-old daughter and I was a single mum. And I started doing this online dating thing. And my friends all said, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Famous last words that they say. (laughs) Do it. It'll be fun. What's the downside? What could possibly go wrong? As it turned out, the the man that I ended up meeting and marrying and having a relationship with was a man who told me he was infertile from a bad bout of mumps when he was a child. That's a tongue twister. (laughs) So when we actually got pregnant, it was a bit of a miracle. When I first met him, he told me he was an IT specialist. He was very, very good with computers and had his own IT company based in St. Andrew's Square in Edinburgh. And I'd been to his offices and stuff like that, met some of his staff. 
And then about two or three months into the relationship, I started noticing some oddities. And in following them up, discovered that he wasn't actually just an IT guy. What he managed to persuade me was that he was working for the intelligence services. So that he was actually CIA, uh, but on secondment to MI6. And this was verified by lots of different evidence, not least the fact that he was carrying a gun in the UK, which is highly illegal. He was paid by money packets from the MOD, Ministry of Defence in the UK. There was people that would verify. There was, you know, sort of went into offices, met people. You know, there was certificates, there was pay packets. I mean, how do you know what your partner does for a living? Right. You go into their office, meet their work colleagues, you see how they're paid. All these things were actually in evidence, but it was all fabricated. It really wasn't true. He's American, yeah. right? So he said he was American CIA that was what contracting with the intelligence services where you are? Yes. So in the UK, MI6 is the international spy agency and MI5 is British internal intelligence. Okay, I see. So he was on secondment to MI6. His specialist area was Israel and Palestine, but he was based in the UK. And there's so much I knew about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at the time because I was so fascinated because my husband was working in it. A lot of people, when they hear this kind of like a headline, think that he came home and said, hey, baby, I'm a spy. And that, that's not what it was. <laughs> he was an IT specialist working for the intelligence services. The closest you can think about it is he was the man in the van. Yes. You, you know how I see all these spy movies and there's the spy and then mm -hmm. there's the backup crew in the van doing all the IT yep. stuff. That's what he did. Well, that's what he said he did. He persuaded me and, and his other wife and a few of his fiancés that he did. We were together for six years. After four years of being together, he started to explain to me that there were shadowy people after us. And if we didn't come up with money, they were going to kidnap the kids and rip bits off them and send them to the post if we didn't manage to pay them off. So very long story short, but basically he took me for £200,000 and left me £56,000 of debt. It turns out I wasn't married to him because although we went through the marriage vows, he was already married to someone else. So he was a bigamist and a con man and a convicted paedophile and a psychopath. It turns out he has now 14 children by about six different women. In 2005, when he was first arrested, he had two wives and three fiancés. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so not just a bit of a bad lad. He was out and out the most toxic, dangerous person. It wasn't just women he was conning as well. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off of money. But he, he also was ripping off businesses. So he's ripped off and conned millions of pounds off really big businesses. And he was working for the Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott, when he was arrested. So you can see why I wrote a book about it, because it's just... <laughs> It took 60,000 words just to explain to people what actually happened. There were enough kernels of truth because he really was an IT specialist and he really did have a business. But there were a lot of other things going on in the background that he said yeah. were going on that really weren't. But there, were, there was enough evidence that why would you question him? That's pretty much it. It wasn't okay. that any of us didn't question him. We did. But he, he was very good at coming up with and fabricating evidence. To give you an example, when he was imprisoned in the UK and he was deported back to the USA in 2009... When he was deported, the American embassy in London issued him a passport, American passport, to be deported back to the USA. So it was for two days only. It had a stamp to the American embassy. And it says for outward travel only, two days and the date. And this passport reappeared later on. It had certain bits scratched out. So it had the American embassy logo on it. It had the date on it, but it said outward travel. And then the only was scratched out. And he typed diplomatic attache on it. Uh. <laughs> so 
And he used wow. the American Embassy logo to help him sort of deceive people. And he got bank accounts with things like this. Wow. He's very, very good at what he does. Very, very good. How did you find out? Did you get a phone call? Did you find a letter? And how did you find out that he had another family? And- <laughs> His other wife rang me. <laughs> That's a phone call you definitely are not expecting. This is why it's such a complicated story. I wasn't expecting the phone call from her, but I was expecting a phone call because I knew he'd been arrested. But that in itself is a longer story. Towards the end of my relationship with him, things were very, very, very frightening. I'd spent you know, almost a year not sleeping. I had a baby who was only a few months old, and I was believing that shadowy, nasty figures that brought down the Twin Towers were actually coming to try and kidnap my children. Gosh. Not least having a seven-year-old, a four-year-old and a one-year-old, but I was up every night searching the house thinking I could hear people. Mm. It was it was pretty frightening. So actually, what surprises people is when I got that phone call from the other wife, they all expected me to say it was devastating and it was awful and it was this, that, and the other. Actually, it was a huge relief. It was a get-out-of-jail-free card because it meant there weren't all these horrible people after me. It was just him. So it was just him telling lies and yeah. everything that you were afraid of didn't exist. I'd lost everything, but, you know, sort of like at the same time, by that stage, actually, it was a massive relief. It was honestly, it was like coming out of the matrix and finding actually that the world outside isn't awful. It's actually far far better. Wow. (laughs) I'd been living in hell and I got, you know, that phone call didn't destroy my life. It it actually repaired it. Wow. It is a bizarre story. It really is. What made you want to write the book? And when it was re-released, what were the changes that were made? Well, the book came out originally in 2007. It's been re-edited, so it's just been remastered a bit. The reason it's coming out again in September is because it's been taken on by a new publisher. It's had a good edit again, so it's been refreshed, shall we say. But it's essentially the same book as it has been since 2007. But one of the reasons they're republishing it is because my new book is coming out in the winter, which they're also taking on. And so they're linking them together so that their new one is a sequel. Oh, excellent. The bigamist only goes up to 2007 when he was imprisoned and had his appeal, which he was uh, laughed out of court for. And the psychopath is really everything that I learned about psychopaths and everything I've learned about him since and how I recovered from it all as well and how I'm now sitting here laughing with you about it. Oh, I love it. Now would be a really good time for you to give your definition of psychopath, sociopath, and narcissist, just because I feel like you have sure. a really nice, simple way of explaining those things. It's it's very much layman's terms. Don't get the comments coming back going, that's not accurate. It's sort of close to it. It's an easy key to remember. Psychopaths and sociopaths are effectively the same thing. A psychopath is born with no chemical empathic response to anybody else's pain or to their own. But a sociopath is made, usually from abuse between the ages of zero and five that any empathic response they have is abused out of them. But essentially, after they turn like 15, 16, they are cooked and, you know, they're not allowed to be diagnosed till 18. But once they hit 18, a psychopath and a sociopath are essentially the same thing. So in America, particularly Canada, Dr. Dr. Harris, they're actually stopping using the term sociopath at all because it doesn't actually make any difference. But a psychopath is basically someone who has no chemical empathic response to anybody else's pain. They don't care about anybody including themselves. So they can damage themselves, they hurt themselves, they'll go to prison. They don't care they're going to go to prison because that's how it'll happen in the future. So they they only care about what they're doing in their game right now. A narcissist, on the other hand, is a very similar creature, except for one major difference. A narcissist doesn't care about anybody except themselves. So a narcissist, for instance, you know, if they include the people around them, so the individual like their children or their partner or anything else, they see them as an extension of themselves. They are included in that bubble of somebody they care about. But if they step out of line and don't do what they're told, 
that a guillotine will come down and they are on the outside. They don't care about them at all. Wow. It's like a switch goes off. Okay. So you wrote The Bigamist in kind of the throes of revelation when you were finding out all of these things that were actually true about the man that was supposed to be the one person you could trust the most on this earth. Yeah, I was writing The Bigamist as he was going on trial. So it was very fresh. It is no holds barred. Absolutely. What I believed at the time. I mean, it tells you from the very beginning of the book that it's all a con because it starts off with a phone call from the other wife. So everyone knows, all reading through it, that this is all a con. But I still tell it as I didn't know it was a con at the time and what I found out when, etc. I've just done the audiobook and reading it out loud to somebody is quite extraordinary because the guy who was doing the editing of the audiobook every so often would interrupt me and he would go, did you hear that scream? And I was going, no, what scream? And he would go, it was just me, don't worry about it. And it's like, as I'm reading, you know, I'd say something, and he'd just in the background, he'd go, what the f***? A couple of times he was going, bastard! And you're like, pipe down back there, I'm working! But it was so lovely to get that kind of instant reaction from somebody. I mean, there's like loads and loads of reviews of the books just saying, I could not put it down. And I actually have occasionally had, and it's so lovely, you're in a supermarket and someone walks up to you and goes, you're Mary Turner Thompson. And you go, yeah. And they go, you kept me up all last night. And this little fist bump, you know, because it's like, <laughs> it's the best thing you can say to an author. Oh, My brother yeah. says it's rather like watching a train crash in slow motion. You just can't look away. It's, it's awful that you can't look away. It was a purge for me of this is what's just happened. But it was incredibly cathartic because I, of course, now I don't have any emotional residue with regard to it. I completely see it for everything as it was. People turn around and see and say, are you stupid? And it's like, I can go, no, but I can tell you why it happened and what happened and how it happened and and how you could stop it happening to you. It's just quite fun. We were talking about funny stories. There are so many funny stories around it. Do you want me to tell you some of them? I'd love to hear them. Yes. Okay. When the wife first rang me, we talked for about two hours on the phone. She hung up the phone and she got in the car and she drove up to Edinburgh to see me. Four hours later, I opened the door and she was there at my door. And uh, so we decided I didn't want to take her into my house. So we took her to a cafe instead and she and I walked into this cafe. We turn around to the guy at the bar and, and you know, it's sort of like we're kind of looking at each other in this kind of the way you, you can only look at somebody you've just found out is married to your husband. <laughs> and we're sort of in shock. And the, the guy behind the counter said, can I help you? And I turned around to him and I said, you know, I don't know. We both just found out we're married to the same man. And he, <laughs> he, he looked astonished. And I kind of looked at her and then looked back at him and said, you know, uh, no, no, sorry, just t- two cups of tea. <laughs> and he said, do you want to share a pot? This might take a while. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many funny things to do with it. And I have a bit of a response mechanism now to dealing with anything unpleasant is to try and see the funny side because there are, there's, there's some amazing funny sides. When it happened, I got verbal diarrhea with regard to it. I couldn't stop telling everybody what happened. Probably still am 14 years later. I mean, I'd be at the bus stop and someone say, good morning. And I go, good morning. I'm married to a biggest. (laughs) 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 You know, do you know what I mean? It was, and people would go, What? (laughs) This will fascinate you. Guess what I'm going through? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I tried to include as many of the funny stories I could in the book as well, because it's the one thing it's not as a misery memoir. Yes, you're not looking for sympathy. No. It is very clear to me that your aim now, I mean, of course, at first it was probably, like you said, it was cathartic. You were able to go back and really iron out some of your confusing thoughts around the circumstances that you were living through. 
But it's clear to me now that your aim is to educate people on psychopathy, sociopathy, narcissism, and how this could really happen to anyone because these people really are at a complete lack for the emotional restraints that the neuronormative people have, you know? I like that, neuronormative. (laughs) That's great, love. I don't know how else to say it. (laughs) Empathic people. Yes. Yeah, or neurotypical. What's so extraordinary is in 2000, online dating was brand new. People go, is it dangerous? Is it not dangerous? Stuff like that. But I mean, even then I tried to do my due diligence, as people say. I looked him up online, but his name is Will Jordan. Right. So Will and Jordan, if you try and Google those two words, you end up getting statements like, will the country of Jordan do such and such politically, you know, or will Jordan, the baseball or basketball player do X, you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't help. Couldn't find anything about him. But one of the reasons I couldn't find anything about him is nobody had gone public with the story. Basically, people are embarrassed. I mean, they get embarrassed about having been a victim of a crime, get embarrassed about having been a victim of a con, particularly if it's somebody who's supposed to be your lover or your husband. Yes. You know, there's there's a humiliation there. There's an embarrassment. And the one thing I've never been is embarrassed. I've never been embarrassed or humiliated or upset about what happened because I know I did nothing wrong. And I know I'm not stupid. And I know I'm not particularly gullible, believe it or not. People asked me when I first wrote the book, they said, are you going to write it under your own name? Uh, the very question belies the attitude yeah. that I should have been embarrassed. And I, I was like, yeah, of course. Why would I? I'm not ashamed. But as a result, you know, I've now become a bit of an advocate for not victim shaming and particularly not victim shaming yourself. Yes. So many people do that. And I get letters every day from people who say something similar happened to me and I've never told anyone. Oh. I always go back to them and say, but you know, you did nothing wrong. Wasn't your fault. Mm -hmm. If you've been a victim of a crime, it was not your fault. Well, I love that. And I have to tell you, my mother-in-law was the victim of a, a very small and abbreviated con compared to what you were a victim of. But she ended up getting swindled out of some money. And she thought it was because she was getting one of her grandchildren out of trouble. Aww. And every time she brings that up, she says, I just can't believe how stupid I am. <gasps> I say to her, Kathy, and it gives me goosebumps all over my body just talking about it right now. The fact that that happened to you is evidence that you love your grandchild. Mm-hmm. That is all. Yeah. And it just brings tears to me almost because she really is ashamed that she was conned and it says something so different to me. Yeah, but that's what they do is psychopaths will target empaths. And the more empathic you are, the more chance there is of you being caught because they use your empathy against you. So they used, in my case, used my children to persuade me to give up money. In your mother's case, it was using her grandchildren to get her to give up money. You get so swamped in the fear that something's going to happen to your children, you don't see rationally what's going on. And it's not stupidity. It's not gullibility. It's not anything else. It's a very, very carefully laid con. Yep. It's called fraud and it's illegal. The other thing I told my mother-in-law is, so this is evidence of two things, actually, your great and deep love for your grandchild. And the Mm -hmm. second thing is because she had to race around town and collect up this cash and you have 45 minutes and all this stuff. And she pulled it off. Mm. I was like, Kathy, this is incredible. <laughs> Look what you were capable of yeah. when your grandchild was at risk. One of the things I said to my children is that the one thing they can guarantee, the one thing they know is that parents say that they give the shirt off their back for their kids and they give anything for their kids. 
Kathy proved it. That's right. And so did you. Yeah. And that's one thing you know you can take away from all of this is that you've proved how loyal and loving and empathic you are towards your children and your and your loved ones. If you hold on to that pain, if you hold on to the oh, but I was conned and I feel embarrassed and everything else, you're you're actually giving them even more of yourself than you gave them the money. Yes, that's such an interesting point. So talk to me about how you talk to your children about this man. Because he's a psychopath, he has no empathy and no chemical empathic response to other people's pain. So to him, we are all like Sims characters. He doesn't have any emotional connection to his children any more than he does to his female victims or his business victims for that matter. So he is incapable of love or guilt or remorse or anything like that. So when I sat my children down and I told them what had happened and I said, you know, look, he's going to jail. When you guys do something wrong, I make you sit in your bed and think about it. When you're an adult, you're supposed to know right from wrong. And if you do commit crimes, then a judge tells you you need to go and think about it and they put you in a prison to do that. So they knew he was in the right place. But also I said, he is a psychopath. I didn't do the whole, you know, oh, he's a excuse the language, bastard, or he's a horrible man, or he's evil, or anything like that, because that's not going to help my children. Absolutely. And I explained to them, if your father was blind, you wouldn't blame yourself that he can't see you. He is a psychopath. He's not capable of emotion. So it's nothing to do with you that he can't love you. Mm. And they get it. And they absolutely, they grew up being able to talk about it. They grew up, no bitterness, because I've, I've got no bitterness about it. What a gift to your children that you yeah. used restraint, because I'm sure at first it took restraint, didn't it? I mean, or were you just very logical about it from the get-go? Well, I was a motivational speaker before all this happened. And I, I was working with motivational speakers as well, a business advisor and marketing consultant by trade. So I kind of went, well, I've, I've either got to walk my talk here or I've got to stop mm-hmm. talking about it because I can't ever talk about motivation again in my lifetime if I don't actually live by it. I also have been talking for quite some time to people about the fact that we teach our children by example. If you sit and talk to your kids with a cigarette in your hand and say, don't smoke kids, they're going to smoke. I mean, it's that, that's, that's as simple as that. They're going to do what we do, not what we say. Yes. So I thought, well, I've got a golden opportunity here to actually teach my children how to deal with adversity. Because whatever I do right now is teaching them how to deal with a difficult situation. So I thought, well, would I teach them to lie down, cry yourself into a puddle and never trust anyone, not do anything again, just you know, give up? And the answer to that one is absolutely not. Of course not. If my children came to me and said, this has happened to me, I would say, pick yourself up, dust yourself down, go write a book about it, help other people understand and you know, protect future yep. victims. And be proud of yourself for what you do achieve, not what for the things that have been done to you. I decided to live that advice and, you know, allow myself to forgive myself for being caught because I wouldn't blame my children if they got caught. And it's great because it gives you that excuse to do good things for yourself. As parents, we tend to sacrifice ourselves for our children. If you do that, all you're doing is teaching your children to sacrifice themselves. Mm-hmm. My philosophy is very much, you know, if you want your children to be happy, you have to show them a way. You have to be happy yourself. I do love my kids to bits and therefore I have to love myself to bits so that they will too. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I just love your perspective. I love it. Oh, thank you. One of my missions in life is to maybe not completely erase the situation of embarrassment, but to shrink it and give it less power because being embarrassed about something is a normal, natural response, but 
you don't have to sit in that. You don't have to wallow in it. You don't have to shame yourself. As quick as you can learn to laugh about it, you kind of get your power back, you get your joy back, you gain perspective, and then you can go help other people laugh at their situations. And you just kind of create this ripple effect of joy. And so I see you so actively doing that. I yeah. think it's incredible. Should I, should I tell you my most embarrassing story? Yes. In, um, oh, I can't remember what year it was. Might be like 2012, something like that. I was doing a gig at the Edinburgh Book Festival with a man called John Ronson, who wrote a book called The Psychopath Test, which is well worth a read. It's very funny. And he wrote it because he met me. We do a live show called The Psychopath Night together. Anyway, we were doing this book signing at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and he was signing books. I was signing my books. And for two hours, I signed books. And there are people queuing up for two hours to get a signature on on a piece of paper. But more to sort of spend a couple of minutes talking to me and you know, asking private questions and stuff. So anyway, after this, I was, am I allowed to swear? Yes, I, <laughs> okay, I may so. bleep it, but please. <laughs> but yeah, so after this book signing, I was feeling seriously very, very f-ing full of myself. <laughs> so I walked across the courtyard and into, there's uh, lots of different tents at the, the Edinburgh Book Festival. It's, a, it's an international book festival. It's absolutely brilliant, well worth visiting. And so I went into the book sale tent and I was wandering around and I picked up a couple of books and I went to stand on the queue. So standing in the queue behind this lady who was holding my book, The Bigamist. So still feeling very, very cocky, I tapped this woman on the shoulder and I said, that's my book. Do you want me to sign it? And she turned around and looked me up and down with disdain and went, no. Oh, oh what? I had to stand behind this woman for the next full 10 minutes, wanting the ground oh. to eat me up. I was just like, I Painful. mean, it was like that sort of huge height of feeling so arrogant, full of myself. I was cut off at the knees and I was just standing there feeling so embarrassed. And it was so, so funny because I realized afterwards that I must have come across to her like a complete nut and nutcase. I mean, who expects the author of a book that you're just about to buy, standing behind you like some sort of literary stalker, you know, offering to sign a book for you. So instead of checking your ID, she just gave you a dressing down. Exactly. So she probably got home, opened the book and saw my photograph and went, oh. It really was her. Okay, so during the 10 minutes when you were waiting behind her in the line, were you thinking, should I tell her to look at my picture? But then you seem really <laughs> desperate and strange. It would just get worse, wouldn't it? You would just yes. get worse and worse. It would just be the knees. You'd be cut off at the hips by that stage. You know, oh, but I'm sure somewhere in the world there's a woman, you know, from the International Book Festival who's telling this story to someone else and saying, do you won't believe this, but the most weird thing happened to me. <laughs> I actually I was, told her no and I was rude I was, to her. Yeah. Can you believe that? <laughs> Oh my goodness, that is crazy. That <laughs> quite nuts, isn't it? I've had some great times. Have you ever heard of uh, Ian Rankin? I have heard the name. Refresh me. It's a very famous Scottish writer. Anyway, he was in the author's tent at the book festival one year. The wonderful thing about being an author is when you get to go to the author's tent, because you get to meet all these amazing authors. Mm. And to me, they're rock stars. Oh, I bet you were just fangirling. That would be so oh, incredible. Yes, but I mean, you have to hide it, you know. Of course, you have to play it cool. And the great thing is about authors is people don't generally recognize them. So, you know, they, they know the name, but not necessarily what they look like. Uh, so I've met people like Jacqueline Wilson. I've met Sean Connery. I've met various sort of interesting authors that I've met in the tent, you know, Marcel Theroux, you know, various people. 
But I was standing in the, the author's tent having a glass of wine, you know, it was all free buffet and everything was there, talking to a few people. And Ian Rankin was there and uh, he's got a disabled son. And we were chatting away. I didn't know it was him. Uh, so we were chatting oh. away and uh, he said, oh yeah, it's really awful. I, I've spent ages trying to get a babysitter. I couldn't get a babysitter. I ended up meeting this Spanish girl and getting her to come and babysit for me. And I said, oh, oh okay, that, that's, that's good. And he said, what? And I said, well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that we spend our entire life telling our children to be wary of strangers and then we pay them to come into our house. <laughs> and he sort of he kind of freaked out and he, and he kind of looked surprised and he went, you know, sort He's of like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go on stage and you just put that in my head. <laughs> I was like, oops, sorry. <laughs> That's when I realized that was Ian Rankin, you know, and I was like, oh dear. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're not wrong. <laughs> All these wonderful things. I mean, I've been on TV, oh, I've lost count how many times. I've done about 30 or 40 radio shows. I get to go on stage with John Ronson and talk to audiences of 2000 and make them laugh about psychopaths. I do all these things and I wouldn't have been able to do all these things if I hadn't lived through what I'd lived through. So I don't credit him for it, but you know, we are not defined by the awful things that happen to us. We're defined by how we deal with the awful things that happen to us, you know, and how we rise in the ashes of anything that happens in our lives is how we end up feeling about ourselves. So, you know, I've had that opportunity to rise from those ashes and that, that I will always be grateful for. You, you can't change the past. You, you can change the future because of, of what you do today, but you can't change the past and you can't affect the future. You can only act today. And it's sort of like that, that's mm-hmm. something that's really important. So many people try and live in the past or, you know, they're anchored to the past, either in embarrassment or they're anchored to the happy things that happened to them in the past that they're now bemoaning don't exist anymore or aren't happening. So people that are living in the past are, are always going to be somewhat unhappy. People living in the future who are just trying to chase their dream Yes, have a goal. Yes, have a dream, but have a dream that you're putting into action today. Because if you're living constantly in the future, then nothing is ever good enough right now. So, you know, live live in the now, forgive yourself for all past transgressions and just, you know, go, okay, what have I learned from it? What can I do? You know, there's a lovely thing about if you get knocked back in this world, you could either fall over or you can actually deal with it like it's a string of a bow and you're the arrow. Yes, you fall back, you allow it to, to throw you further forward than you could ever possibly have gone before. And, you know, that's the way I see life. We do have awful things happen to us and to, to people all the time. The pandemic that has hit so badly and had people in lockdown. There are so many people I know who are writing books now because they're in lockdown. You know, they may become international best-selling authors because of the pandemic. Not that the pandemic is a good thing, but there are that's people right. who are making a good thing out of this bad situation. This episode is brought to you today by Beauty Bioscience. I have been using some products from Beauty Bioscience for about seven weeks, and I have completed my six-week treatment of R45, the reversal. I actually love it. I absolutely had no side effects of redness or flaking, but I did notice the last few weeks, I think, I caught a glimpse of a couple of pictures that people had taken of me, one of which is me crawling under our chicken coop to retrieve eggs that our chickens laid under there, but that's another story. And I have noticed lately that my skin looks younger, just in general. 
Also, the Quench, which is a wonderful moisturizer, is billed as a moisturizer when your skin is undergoing more stressful situations than usual. But I tell you what, I love it. And you know what? I think my kids are stealing it too because I found the little plastic inner lid off the other day and I would not have left that off. So I am loving these products. I think you should check them out. If you go to beautybio.com and use the coupon code FANCYFREE, you'll get 15% off of everything in your cart. You definitely have to go check them out, beautybio.com. What have you been loving lately that you think the listeners might love too? Well, I've been watching various things about psychopaths. Like, I mean, I do all the time. I'm absolutely fascinated by the subject. So I've been watching Killing Eve, which I don't know if you've come across. I have but not. But Killing Eve is one of the best portrayals of a psychopath. I've ever seen. It's two women, one who's a contract killer and one who's a British intelligence officer trying to catch her. And it's absolutely brilliant. It's so good because you often find in films and TV that when they're talking about psychopaths, particularly 10 years ago, it's getting better than now, actually, possibly because people like me standing up talking about it. But they used to sort of give a, a story about a psychopath, like the talented Mr. Ripley is a story about a psychopath. But at the end, it ends up with him shedding a tear for something. If you have somebody who is a psychopath, as such, they would not have those kind of emotions. It's more likely to be see them practicing in a mirror, trying to shed that mm-hmm. tear than you would see it okay. in private on their own. You know how when, if you yawn in a group of people, the more empathic yes. you are, the more likely you are to yawn as well. Uh-huh. So a psychopath actually won't yawn when other people do. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's a that's like a sneaky little litmus test, unless they know that they're yeah. supposed to yawn. <laughs> Which they do. Yeah. Oh, wow. They're very good at faking it. Well, I'm trained in medicine. And so it kind of ruins a lot of things for me. I think now Hollywood, why didn't you just call me up and ask me to consult? I wouldn't charge much. (laughs) But let's make this realistic. There are a lot of people on this earth with medical knowledge and the entertainment is just ruined. I mean, sometimes I can say, okay, Joanne, just enjoy it. But sometimes I'm like, they're not even pronouncing that word correctly. They've just broken the spell for me. It's so frustrating. So I'm sure the same thing happens to you when you're watching any kind of piece of entertainment that's supposed to be depicting a psychopath. Yeah. The best portrayal I've seen recently of a psychopath is a horror film. So you have to have a pretty strong stomach to want to watch it. But it's called The House That Jack Built. It's very clever because it's told from the psychopath's point of view. So all the victims are rather dim and, you know, sort of like too accepting, too meek how easily he manages to manipulate the victims. It's not that they're stupid. It's just that that's from his perspective. Psychopaths see themselves as predators and us as the prey. And rather like the wolf doesn't really respect the sheep. They think of them as rather pathetic. Will Jordan, my ex, once turned around to somebody else, one of his other victims in the US, and said that he realized he'd messed with the wrong woman when he messed with me. (laughs) (gasps) Yes! Because I didn't stay silent, because I did speak up, because I've not been embarrassed, because they depend on that. They depend on you not calling them out and not talking about it and not going public. He misread you. Me going public means that the new victims, when they do their search online, they find my book, they find me, they find my website, they contact me, we talk, I put them in touch with the other victims. We've actually got a Facebook group of his victims. Really? <laughs> really? Wow. So we're able to kind of plot when he goes to court with another woman who she's managed to find us. She, you know, we get nine, ten women writing from all over the world to the judge mm-hmm. saying, this is not yes. a one-off. Don't take this lightly. You are looking out for each other. That is amazing. Yeah. yeah. You are the one who pulled that trigger because no one else was talking. Yeah. 
Exactly. That's what they depend on, though, is that the first Mm -hmm. rule of any abuser is keep your victim silent. If you can stop your victim from talking, then you can carry on as an abuser to go on to the next victim, etc. So it's in their interests that we stay embarrassed and stay silent. And that that worked for him while you were in it, because I remember you saying you were worried about endangering your loved ones. So you kept quiet when you thought you were going through this really terrible terroristic situation. Yes. I was led to believe that if I talked about it, I would put other people in danger. And that's again, playing on my empathy to keep me in line. If you're ever in a situation where you feel you can't talk to someone about it, then that in itself should be red flags. That's right. That's a time you should talk to someone about it. The thing is, if you don't talk to people, you you can't make sense of what's going on in your head. That's right. It's much more easy to manipulate someone if they're not allowed to talk about it because they can't articulate mm-hmm. and, and actually you know get, get a grip on what the thoughts really are. So it's a very confusing state. Think about how many times that you have explained a problem that you're having to someone else. And the minute you explain it, it's like the pieces fall into place differently in your head. And all of a sudden, you might not even need help solving the problem. You've solved it yeah. just by speaking about it. Yeah, or talking wow. about a dream. When you actually start to sell somebody a dream, you suddenly realize what it's about because yes. you're articulating it. And it's mm-hmm. very, very much the opposite of that. You know, you're not allowed to talk about it because you're not allowed to, or the only person you're allowed to talk to about it is them. You take on what they're saying. You take on their philosophy and their mentality around it or the one that they're trying to do. It's called gaslighting. And it's a very, very effective way of controlling people. So if you ever feel you have to stay silent about something, then find someone to talk to about it. Because that's really important. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a loved one if you're worried about endangering a loved one because you're not sure whether it's true or not. Then yeah. find somebody completely objective, a priest, yeah. a pastor, a counselor, someone, and just so, talk it through Someone with at them. the bus stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you just might make their day. <laughs> Anybody. Even just write it down. And if you're writing something down, mm, you've got to kind mm-hmm. of make sense of it. If you're writing something down that you're not even have to share with anyone else, as you're writing it down, you're going, but that doesn't make sense. Then you can articulate it a bit better. But it is better if you talk to someone because then they generally ask questions you hadn't necessarily thought of. Yes. But if you can't talk to someone, then write it down and see what happens then. Because sometimes that too will just bring around new thoughts, new perspectives, yeah. new questions in your own mind. Would you be willing to share one surprising thing about you that nobody would be able to tell just by looking? Hmm. Can I think of anything? Trouble is I'm so much of an open book. I'm not sure. I play chess. <laughs> Actually, no, I'll tell you a story that isn't publicly known and I haven't told very often. And that is that when I first went public with my story, I had a lot of people commenting, how stupid is this woman? Like, sort of like she must be really thick to have, have believed this story. And I kind of looked at her and thought, well, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I know I'm not stupid, but I'd actually quite like to know quite how not stupid I am. So I don't know if you've heard of it, but an organization called Mensa. Yes. The High IQ Society. So you can do an IQ test with Mensa. They only ask you to join Mensa if you're in the top 2% of your country. So I thought, but it'd be really nice to actually do an IQ test to find out exactly where I fit in all of this. And so I did the IQ test and needless to say, I wasn't in the top 2%. I was in the top one. <gasps> wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, you know, it's not a sign of intelligence. Let's just be clear about this. Like, IQ test, it's your ability to solve problems. That is my superpower or whatever. I have the ability to solve problems, which is why I like things like chess. It's why I like brain teasers and stuff like that. You really did pick the wrong lady to tango with. All right. Well, tell our listeners where to find you. Well, you can find me on Facebook, which is just Mary Turner Thompson. You can find me on Twitter on The Bigamist Book. 
You can find me on my website, which is maryturnerthompson.com. And it's Thompson without a P. <laughs> it's the, the dry kind, as we say in Scotland. It's no P. <laughs> so no P for putty, as we put earlier on. Yeah, Mary and I were talking before we started recording. And I, when I hopped on, I thought she was there. And I said, hello. And then I heard water. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's going She's going potty, but then she, it turns out she just poured herself something to Pour drink. And then drink. we got into the discussion of that <laughs> going potty doesn't mean the same to her as it does no. to me. Tell the <laughs> listeners what, what does it mean on your side of the ocean? In our side of the ocean, going potty means you're going mad. It means you're going nuts. <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of things that are different. I don't know what politically your listeners are, but the word Trump in Scotland, for instance, means fart. <laughs> <laughs> It has for generations. There's wow. nothing to do with any How political characters. It just means fart. <laughs> so we, we're actually sort of quite funny when he's sort of like, you've got President Fart. Whereas we're in oh, Mary, this was so much fun. Thank you so, so much for being with me and telling your story. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been so much fun, actually. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Fancy Free Podcast today. Wasn't Mary fascinating? Not only is her story just so unique and so incredible, but her outlook I just find super inspirational. And she's so funny. She and I had such a long, fun conversation that I definitely will be putting more of Mary out as a bonus episode on either Thursday or Friday. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening. That way it'll pop into your feed when it is ready. I also wanted to mention to you that I did have permission from my mother-in-law, Kathy, to tell her story. Make sure to check out the show notes for today's episode at fancyfreepodcast.com slash episode 64 to get all the links we discussed today. Next week on the show, we have Stacy Sims, who has some really funny stories about her early career as a TV reporter. If you want more connection, laughter, and sharing, join us in the Fancy Free Facebook group. The question of the week this week is, have you ever been conned? Have a great week, and remember, no one is as fancy as they look. <laughs>